Hi, this is Rachel. And this is Christy. And welcome back to Constant Chaos. Hey everyone, welcome back to Constant Chaos. It's Christy and Rachel, and we are very excited today to talk to Peter Johnson, who is a seventh degree black belt um, in karate. He's also a Taibo expert. He is a contributor and wrote um, the book with Sarah Shayette, ADHD and the Focused Mind, um, and has a lot of very valuable information in there, which stems from his, pra- his karate practice that he runs and the increase in ADHD children that he had seen, and also the connection to how karate and performance um, has helped both academically and emotionally and spiritually with a lot of these children out there. Um, And we are so excited to have him here. He probably can do a much better introduction than I can, but he is full of energy and he is a great guy with so many helpful nuggets. So we hope you enjoy uh, your time with him today. Welcome, Peter. You want to try to put a bandage bandage on what I just said? Oh, I don't need to triage that. That was outstanding. First, Christy and Rachel, thanks for having me on. I really, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak anything about, you know, whether it's personal performance or personal, personal development or, you know, somebody trying to get a new, a new take on a very, what seems like a very old situation for people. Um, yes, I've been training for about uh, a little bit more than three decades, so 31 years. I've been teaching for the last 27 years of that. And uh, I would say maybe about 15 years ago, I just started to see this really increase of, you know, guidance counselors, teachers, and even parents. And at the time, parents really, it was kind of like this unknown spoken thing, like, oh, my kid's hyperactive. And I've just kind of watched the trajectory over the last 15 years of that, you know, my son has ADD was the first thing to, you know, my daughter has ADHD and we really want to help her. And, you know, as a martial artist, I think if you were to walk into my dojo, the word you'd hear the most often would be the word focus. Um, I believe we are a three-part thing, no matter what we do, we're a mind, we're a body, and we're a spirit. And learning how to get all three of those with the proper focus, I think really puts us in the state, whether you're an athlete, you call that in the zone. If you're, you know, a key performance specialist, you might call that you're in a flow state. But I really think at the end of the day, when we maximize and focus our mind on what it is that we want to achieve, when we really put our body in a position where it's ready to take some action, because, you know, the, the, the best plan only thought about really doesn't become the best plan until we take action on it. And then finally, having yourself aligned spiritually or emotionally. And I, you know, martial arts does a lot of, you know, physical work. But at the end of the day, the longer you train, the more you realize anything you physically do with success, it's because you had a proper spiritual intent or you had a proper intention behind the action. And it's going to always be that physical process that's guided by intention that leads it to be its most effective, whether that's, you know, blocking a technique or moving the right way physically. I think at the end of the day, when you parse it down and you simplify it, really is thinking moving and feeling in an aligned way is going to help you accomplish things that maybe in the outset you didn't think were possible. So, you know, I've been training in Taibo for the last 20 years. I think even before the, I was training with Billy Blanks before the DVDs came out. So I was able to kind of ride that. I've done my fair share of filming on those. And, you know, that was really a blast, but I've been in the idea of learning how to control your body to maximize what your mind does. Because if I, 
you know, if I put myself in a physical, physical unresourceful state, like my physical body isn't feeling or, or sitting or standing in a posture that's resourceful, it's really tough to have those great ideas flow through me. And, you know, how much of communication is nonverbal? right? They say we're like almost 80% of communication is all the meta communication. And that's so much about body language. So I guess you could say I've learned over the last 30 years to become as fluent as possible with body language. I think that when someone moves their body, I, Bruce Lee had a quote, he said, when you move, you reveal yourself. And coming to understand what that means is really the spirit of the person is what gets that physical body to move. You know, you don't get out of bed because your body feels like it. You know, you stay in bed because your body's overriding what you know you should do. So it's learning how to put your, put your body in a good resourceful state. And then everything flows from there. When you're seeing somebody move, you're seeing somebody in action, you can really see what resonates with them and how they feel differently. So, so you talk a lot, sorry to interrupt you, but you talk a lot about, um, sports. You're, there are a lot of sports analogies. There are a lot of performance analogies, how do you handle, so back to kind of the ADHD model, like when you get a kid that comes in or, you know, your child is the one who isn't good at sports, doesn't really want to engage in sports, is overwhelmed by that, you know, I think you mentioned somewhere in the book, like baseball, like super boring if you're not up at bat, right? Super boring if you're not the catcher. If you're standing out in the outfield, they're the ones who are looking for butterflies and picking weeds. So... <laughs> You know, and then back to your kind of your your posture about things. They come in, their shoulders are curled, their heads down, their hoods up. You know, they want to hide. They're trying to hide from the world because it's so hard for them. What do you? How do you engage with that kid? What are you know? What should parents be thinking about? What do you do to help that child who doesn't believe in themselves really? Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing to do with any with anybody is really make a connection. And I think that our body is a universal translator for what's going on spiritually inside us. For example, if I, you know, if I went, if I went to the somewhere in nature and I, I found a bunch of people that spoke Aboriginal click, I don't speak Aboriginal click, but I could still connect with them on a physical level. That's one thing that we all share universally across cultures and across dialects and, and languages. So learning how to make a connection with somebody physically is really important. I think the most elemental thing that we have of life is breath. In fact, breath is life. If I'm not able to talk to somebody, I can still create rapport on those, you know, meta communication levels. And the first thing I do is something we teach our students to do is called matching and mirroring. And the idea behind that is when you harmonize with the rhythm that somebody's in physically, it's easier to help them. It's easier to connect with them. And then if we're talking in a martial sense, it's easy to unravel that rhythm. So if we were fighting and I can match the breathing pattern of my opponent, I can feel the physical state that my opponent is, I'm a lot easier to break that rhythm to throw my opponent off. So learning how to throw somebody off is really easy. Learning how to throw somebody quote unquote on is really the key to your success. So I always think the first thing I do when I have somebody walk in, because I have plenty of those, and I have a lot of people that bring their, their, their children to the dojo, and sometimes they're at that, I am so frustrated state, fix this person. And the first thing I always recognize is there's nothing broken about anybody. There's no, there's, there's no broken person. And what I do is I start matching and mirroring that breathing pattern. That's the most elemental thing we can do. If you think as adults, when we are in exact sync 
in a very heightened emotional state and we're almost breathing at the same tempo as somebody else. And sometimes that breathing gets a little bit more excited. Yeah. You can read between the lines what I'm telling. That's probably the deepest connection <laughs> two physical people can have. You know, that just makes me think like when my kids were little and they were upset, like, what do you do? You, you put them against you and you breathe and you just try to calm them down. And when they start matching your breath, that's how you calm them down. That's, that's what I'm thinking. It's just like an older, as they get older, that's how you connect, but with other people. I do that with, um, my kids have panic attacks. I do that with my kids have panic attacks. Like mm -hmm. I try to touch a part of their body and I just say, just look at me and we're going to try to breathe together for a few minutes to stop everything and try to sit in that moment for a few minutes until, you know, we can get that breathing and that heart rate down. Right. See, there's a resonance that happens that you're passing through to them. And then Rachel, you had a really good point and I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback. Now I'll ask you the question. So you say you, you bring them into your chest and you did this breathing exercise. What was the next way you connected with them? You're already touching them. You're already breathing. What was the next way? Oh, when they were little, you're like rocking them and shushing them. You might move with them. Correct. I so still do that. My kids tell me to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hug me. I did that to my 11 year old recently. I started, he was having a hard time sleeping. He was having a panic attack, worried about school. And he was laying down with me and I started shushing him and going, shh. Correct. And he's Correct. like, please stop. I'm not a baby anymore. <laughs> so then once you create, and I'll just submit this for your approval or disapproval. Okay. Once you were able to make that breathing physical connection, you felt there was a, there's a resonance there. There's a connection there. Then usually it goes not into their ear. It would go into their eyes. You connect with them through their eyes. You create that spiritual. What is that old phrase? The eyes are the windows to the soul. Yeah. So the first thing I do is breathing. The second thing I do is eyes. And I really believe um, soft eye contact, slow eye contact, fleeting Fleeting eye contact is really very important because sometimes I will come to the situation like my son is, is very introverted and I feel like I'm introverted, but I feel like I'm called to live an extroverted life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but so what I do is I make my eye contact with him fleeting because I've found when I come at him, like I've got the way to fix this and Hey, or here's a tip that you should do. I found that when my eye contact is fleeting, my breath remains the same. I still have to stay connected with them. And does this take practice? Anything physical that we do takes practice, but also anything physical that we practice, it can also lead to mastery. Anything physical, whether it's gardening, whether it's juggling, whether it's martial arts, whatever, it's soccer, anything physical you do, you can actually attain a level of mastery. And then what is that? It's where it becomes, you're unconsciously competent. You're able to do it without really realizing it. So when you create that eye contact, then you start to have this transformation of spiritual changing, mm -hmm. right? You're now, you're now resonating with them. You haven't said too much other than to comfort them. And you're just sending in love. You know, the best thing to do when you walk down the street, if you're having a bad day before you're seeing people is before they come close enough is just in your mind. I already love this person and I'm already sending love to this person that's walking down the street to me. You'd be surprised at the exchanges that you would start to have. Or if you sit down somewhere or even like this, look, before I got on this video call, it gives you a little, a little screen where you can see it. I actually spend that time sending my intention of love in through the camera. So, and I think it becomes harmonious that way. And right now, sadly to say, this camera has replaced eye contact. So we have to learn how to do the same exact things 
after this kind of comes and we can start to get that face to face, which with our children, oh my goodness, it's so yeah. great that we are, but we have to realize we are the only resource of that pretty much right now in the world for them. Yeah. So that means it's even more important. And what's the largest organ on the human body? Skin. Correct. And that's why touch, that's why tactile connection is so important. And that hand, I call, I teach it as a technique for teaching. It's called hand on the shoulder. And that's truly what it is. Sometimes somebody needs a finger on the shoulder as hand on the shoulder. Sometimes people need two or three fingers. Sometimes people need all four fingers draping across the shoulder. Sometimes they need no fingers and just a palm on the shoulder. Sometimes they need the whole hand. And sometimes they need that whole hand going circular, side to side, forward and back. So these are all the little things you start to unpack and you look at, okay, well, I did hand on the shoulder, but you know, maybe they don't, they don't need to add a boy right now. Maybe they need a, I feel where you're at. Right. That goes and back. Just, to like, that's like the sensory input. Like, again, going back into the, when kids are little, like I'm, I'm thinking about my eight-year-old when he was little, he need, we were taught how to like um, pressure on, put pressure on his legs to calm him down. Like to like rub his legs or push his, um, his foot back to put that pressure into his legs. And as he got older, he found that he, he needs that big, the big movements to calm himself. Mm -hmm. And it's the big touches that we learned to give him. But like some kids need the lighter touches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think we ever lose that. And I think as we get colder, we, we start to do this. Yes. And if you remember that heat wave we have about two weeks ago, well, I'm over here on the San Francisco uh, Peninsula. We don't have air conditioner. And I remember just laying there, my wife and I, no, no just, oh, enough. I can't take anymore, right? So it's the complete opposite. I don't think we ever lose that. And I think that sometimes we become disconnected from that. And mm -hmm. we forget about that because we're so focused on, you know, I've seen this before. I've dealt with this. I have a solution for this. I'm going to give this. And we have to go back to entering back into that first medium. I, like, I think I was born to do what I'm doing. I know I'm doing what I was meant to do. And I look at the world through a physical way, but I'm not just Pollyannish about it. I know that we need the skills. We need to have differentiations between the type of eye contact, the type of physical contact that's required. And you try a little bit and you see what happens. You try a little bit and you see what happens. And everybody knows the best... If you have more than one child, the best way to fail is try and make them all the same mm -hmm. or just follow the pattern of the first one all the way back through. Nothing fails like success when it comes to children because it doesn't create, it's not, um, it's, a, it's an art. It's not a science. And the art side means you have to have a direct connection to that act that you're doing right with that child. So yes, child rearing and raising children, that, that, there's a science to that. But I leave the science up to the doctors. That's why I co-authored the book with other doctors, not, <laughs> not myself. I leave the science up to them. But when it comes to the art of connecting with somebody, we're all born with that. We just have to start to uncover it again and peel those layers of, okay, wait, mind aligned, body in a, in a congruent physical state. And when I'm there, I have to start to let my heart guide my intelligence. You know, I just did an exercise with a child who is way off the charts and teaching him in a, in a, in a virtual environment is, is its own challenge. And his, his teachers, his parents are like side by side. And the whole school process for him has been uh, reduced to it. I don't know how many minutes a day he has in school. And then they give him a break. Then he comes back. 
but it's completely negative for him. So what I do in the first thing when I get on this is I just try to break his state and then we decompress and then we compress, we keep decompress. It's called expansion and contraction. Contraction is holding, right. It hold that focus and then release it, let go of it. If you do that elementary, like if I asked you to do a, a, a hundred pushups, if I asked some people to do five pushups, you have to figure out where that marker is. What's the number? You figure out the minor, right amount of contraction. So holding that contraction for a planned period of time and then releasing it. And that was one of the strategies that we gave in the book about homework. Why would you sit down for a 50 minute or a 45 minute or a 30 minute session of homework when you can already see after five minutes, they disengage. Most people don't realign. They wait till they disengage and then they try and break the focus. You have to catch them. What is the phrase? Catch them when they're doing something right. Right. Be a good finder, right? Be a finder of the good that they're doing and magnify that. And then you'll see that show up more often. If you know, just for mathematic reasons, if you know that at four and a half minutes, they start to get up and wander and look around, guess what you do at maybe the three and a half minute mark or the four minute mark? You break their state when they're still in it because they're more likely to want to go back to it because it wasn't disrupted with lack of focus. And pretty soon that becomes the obviously the self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. So, okay. So I go into my son who I know is like around 10 minutes into school. He's going to switch on his video game. I go in at eight minutes when he's loving his class and be like, Hey, let's take a break. Mom, get out of here. I like this. You just were successful at changing his state. He just with his words, because remember words are seeds. What we say is planted inside us first. And every time I say something, I know you're going to hear it. So I know it affects you, but the first ears that hear it are my internal ears. So mom, mom, I'm doing this. I'm liking this right now. Great son, go back and enjoy it. You might not get another, what'd you say? It was eight minutes. You might not get another eight minutes, but you're going to get maybe four or five. And then look at how much time you've just built into that focus. And it's a muscle, you know? And that was my, that was my twist on it with, with Sarah was, let's look at this like we're training an athlete. Mm -hmm. Don't wait till muscular failure every single time. When do you want muscular failure? Usually at that apex of your training. Well, beginning athletes don't hit apexes of training. That's after repetition, habit, mindset, and then you start to really challenge that thing. So that, that a great example, great example. Excellent. So let's, let's say if I'm learning how to run, I'm becoming a runner. You want to like stop me when I'm like three minutes in because that's basically all I can do. <laughs> okay. So I would do this. Let's go for a five minute walk, Rachel. Okay. Right. Because running, because I, I did a stint where I got into running ultra marathons, like 50, 100 oh, wow. mile races. That's a different discussion. I want to hear all about that. But that's a whole nother show. But here's the point. <laughs> Fill the time with movement. Okay. And then you learn your movement becomes more efficient. So if I, can, if I can study in front of a screen, we'll keep that eight minute as our marker. I've got eight minutes. I'm gonna fill that time with as much focused movement as possible. And then I wanna break that, I wanna stop my run before it's uncomfortable. Got it. And if I can't run at all, when it's, it's uncomfortable, then I'm just gonna walk. And what you'll find if you get the habit of walking, most people start to walk more briskly till eventually they get in better shape, their mindset changes and they go, you know what? I think I'm just going to jog down the block now, but then I'll keep walking. See, then it's a positive feed. It's a positive loop. And that was that graph that uh, Dr. Benjamin Shea drew, the, the cycle of success. So you're creating a positive cycle of success. Once you feed a dialogue and a, and a mindset that has words to it, 
keep feeding that, keep feeding that. So how do you break that down though? So I, you know, so I have a teenager, right? Who does not feel like there's any purpose to homework and it's a colossal waste of time. Um, you know, he can show up in class and do awesome, but the rest of it's busy work, but they're going to get graded on it and it's going to be super important. And so how do you have that conversation or find those moments to help build that homework endurance? Because we do have to live in the world we live in, right? To some degree. And so some of that performance or building that relationship with the teacher, showing them that you care, like those part of that relationship also has to do with the fact that you're attentive in class, you're doing what you're supposed to do, you're turning it in on time, you're not wasting that teacher's time to catch up with you if they don't need to. How would you like, how would you help me in that situation? So, you know, I've got this kid who just wants to play video games and will get distracted in seconds and it's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So how am I going to find those connections with that teenager? Uh, you got to be really creative because teenagers know it all, right? Yeah. Um, so the way you just described your son is you said you've got this, this, this challenge with homework, but what you did say, you actually fed this more. You gave more energy to it. You said, but when he's in school, he's bright, he's engaging, and he's smart. Make that the foundation of how you're going to get to the homework bug. For example, to be specific, what does he like about school? What does he like about the class? Is it the relationship with the teacher? Is it the interaction? Is it the feeling of certainty that he knows, I don't have to do the homework, but I still know the answers? If it's those things and you unpack and you find out what those little jewels are, what those little nuggets are that he really does appreciate about something, then you have to find a way, a metaphor, a layer to bring it into the activity that he doesn't appreciate. For example, homework could be a very challenging physical task because it's devoid of things that he gets when he's quote unquote in school. What are things you can do to create that in school vibe, that in school feeling or that in school environment in the homework environment. And if you can get that for one minute, now we're back into training that one minute. He's about to lose focus and then break his state, get back. Look, we gotta be a little ridiculous if we're gonna accomplish things that seem impossible. You've gotta put the I'm in I, impossible. And the reason behind this, look, what is the teacher wearing? Maybe he's got this great relationship with the teacher that always wears a USC shirt. Okay, I'm going to get on Amazon and for $4.99, I'm going to wear a USC shirt and say, okay, I am your teacher, Mr. Ganforth. <laughs> you know, like those little things, because when your son loved school, it was fun. When your son loved homework, and I know he did, it was fun. But somewhere we disengaged 100, we decoupled from fun, and then it became learning, studying, finishing, and I know I talked to you guys about this, I think when we first spoke, and I said, my favorite line that Dr. Shea, and she's got Ivy League kid college graduates. I love this phrase. She says, sometimes you just gotta know, gosh, it's only homework. Yeah. And when she said that, I, my jaw hit the floor. I was like, you're, you, went, you went to Princeton, and you da 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 da. You know, sometimes it's only homework. And if your goal is to get the homework first and sacrifice the relationship that's going to get the homework done, then go back and do work on the relationship. And how fun would that be to, how fun would that be to crack up your 16 year old son? Those are moments you'll never get back. 
And those are moments that he'll never forget. Yeah. And you, you, you have to remember this, even when they know it all, every day and almost every interaction you're ever going to have with a child and, and you never know the impact it's going to have in them. And here's how you know this. You've been at work doing something. Maybe you're out in the yard. Maybe you're in the living room. Maybe you're in the kitchen. What are you just doing something around the house? And randomly your child comes to you and says, Hey, remember when you said this and blah, blah, blah. And they're smiling on their face and you know, it was like this great moment in their life. And you have to somehow put on airs and go, Oh yeah, hon. I, but we have no idea of, we have no recollection. Remember, those are happening every single day and they're happening every time potentially when you're looking at the homework book. So what do you do? This is what you do. You check your own physiological state first before you enter into what seems like it may be a challenging situation for you. Like, how's my physiology? How's my breathing? Am I walking in there with hard eyes? Am I walking in there with silly eyes? Like, how am I just going to unravel you in the middle of your homework? What am I going to do that's going to make this fun? And that's where the mother, uh, that's where the parental creativity comes in. I'm not even going to, I'm not going to pin it on a roll. Thank that's, you. It always yes, no, in. yes. That's where it's, that's where it's just going to come in. And that's where, when you are at your best, you as parent, see the love, not the child, see the love of your child, not what you want to get them to do. And that's physiology. That's breathing. We breathe love. And then we start to feel it. We stand in love and then we start to feel it. The best movies change your physiology, right? Sometimes it comes out of your eyes. Sometimes <laughs> it comes out of a breathing pattern that's shifted. But that's, maybe it's backwards. And I've said this before, I take a backwards approach to training. You know, when you, when you change the physical carriage, it's going to change the thought that's going in and the emotions and the intention that's flowing through you. And I think that that's a really powerful metaphor. So I, I hope that that speaks to that because I know that that's a, and, and sometimes you just got to choose your battles. You know, well, you know. I was just going to say like, so for a lot of people, right, they're super frustrated. They've, yes. they've tried everything that's in their, their own toolbox and their wheelhouse yeah. and they potentially need someone else with fresh eyes and a fresh perspective to give them some counsel. So I think what's important is to remember to kind of check in with yourself first and remember that what you exude is going to probably set the tone for the house. And um, as frustrated as you might be, you could do what I do, which is I used to get a cup of tea and walk around a furniture store to calm myself down or go to the grocery <laughs> store. Now that's not so easy. So sometimes I sit in the car, but whatever it is, check in with yourself and make sure that you are in that spiritual, mental, physical state that you can have that engagement. Otherwise, trust me, it's a nuclear disaster. And I have plenty of examples to show the injury and harm that has gone on around the walls of this house when we're not in the right mental state. Yes, yes. And then that, that so the tea, the tea and the furniture store is a ritual. And we've had to readjust the rituals that we have now in our daily life. We have to create new rituals. You know, my mom was an avid coffee drinker and I really wasn't too into coffee because I went off on the whole health thing. But I used my mom's coffee drinking habit to let one time a week make sure that I was always planning my week, right? And I love the physiology of coffee or warm tea or warm cocoa if you're a cocoa drinker. Imagine you're probably drinking it less and you're holding it more. There's mm -hmm. a physiology of that warmth. 
that is the connection that you're making with yourself less than, well, I need to get my jitter. I need to get my jolt or I need to get this. So find the way, the means at which you create that state. Is that a breathing pattern? Is that a physiology? Is that a temperature? Is that a cozy blanket? Is that a nice shirt? Is that a nice jacket? Is that just picking up your keys thinking, yes, I love holding these in my hands because it gives me a, a sense of my, my own empowerment. Whatever that anchor is, Creating those anchors creates new rituals. And then that way you have a ritual to always fall back on. But yeah, I agree. That's, that's the choose your battles, but you always go into every battle equipped as best as possible. And that becomes your first, your own physiology. You know? Yeah. And I think, you know, so we have this conversation around here all the time. My husband and I have very different ways in which we get to that calm state to be able to manage our day. Right. And so he's a very strong believer in meditation. Um, and, you know, he has to have these certain steps in the morning to make his day flow. Mine has a lot more to do with getting up earlier um, and having my warm tea, not because I even care one lick about caffeine. It could be whatever in that cup, but it's my, my, it's my time to sort of process. And then I kind of check in with myself in the afternoon again. And sometimes then I do need the jolt of caffeine, but it's also, I'm going to have my tea right now <laughs> and try to do that. And, um, that helps me stay on track. And so some people's exercise, you know, Rachel does her exercise every morning at a certain time and I can't make her stop it to meet with me no matter what I try. Nope, you can't. Yeah, she's like, no, forget it, it's my time. I'm like, dude, come on, do it later. <laughs> um, For so me, that, that's how I stay. Like, if I don't have my time to work out and to like push myself, I used to be a marathon runner, I can't do that anymore. But if I can't have that, then, I can't be there for anybody. I need my me time. If you have children, you are always a marathon runner. <laughs> it's a different nope. kind of marathon now. Correct. Correct. This is Correct. one long journey. But ready? You could take all the skills and attributes and habits you learned from your marathon running, and you could find a way to make that a metaphor for what you're doing now. Totally but, possible. You know, I used to, so for my marathons, I used to, um, it kind of goes into your smart goals, like, you know, breaking things up. And I use this with my kids a lot. So if you tell, if I told somebody I was going to run 26 miles, or I, I said it to myself, I'm like, there's no freaking way. Like when I first ran the Napa Marathon, you start in Calistoga, you end up in the town of Napa, 26 miles. What year? Uh, the first time I ran it, I did 94 and 95. Oh, okay. All right. Back when it, you could sign up that day. Yes. Or you didn't have to sign up months in advance. But I, when you run a marathon, the first 10 miles, okay, you train for it. 10 miles is easy. So you don't even think about it. I'm going to run 10 miles. Then I'm going to get to 15. I'm just going to get myself to 15. And when you're 15, you're like, okay, I can get myself to 20. So you just break it, break it up. And then once you're at 20, as you know, all bets are off. So it's mile by mile. And I would give myself like little rewards. At every mile, I would get a two minute walk if I needed it. I would give myself that break. If I didn't need it, okay. But that's how I, in my mind, how I processed it. And so I tell my kids, you may have to do a marathon, but you're going to do step by step by step. Don't think about the whole thing. So. Sometimes, we, sometimes we forget that and getting them to do their homework assignment. We're looking at the grade. We're looking at the transcript. We're looking at the course. We're looking at the whole you know, semester or quarter. And we have to go back to, like you just said, step by step. You know, the really thing that's very important that I'll speak to about parents that's really that I try to delineate because, you know, like I said earlier, words are seeds. If I have this ritual and it's really quite simple. If this ritual that I have is time for me, whenever anything happens to disrupt that, there's going to be an agitation. 
Yep. And then there's going to be a conflict. However, by changing one word, when this is time with me, that one change, this is not time for me because if it's taken, I feel a loss. This is time with me. That means it's about connection. And then if I'm in the habit of doing something that's time with myself, that will build and build and build that stronger connection. And then you're just going to translate that connection you have with yourself to whatever it was that may have taken you from that time specifically. Um, when it comes to marathons and running, I learned a really powerful phrase that applies completely to life. Don't do the math. When I'm running and I'm, I'm at mile 48 and I'm thinking about the next you know, 52 miles that I have to run, you know what? Those 52 miles might as well be 252 miles. But if I'm at mile 48 and I go, okay, where's, where's my next, where's my, oh, 1.3 miles? Okay, I can do that. For me, that's going to be about 1,300 steps. So I'm just going to start counting 100. And I just count 100 steps, 100 steps, 100 steps. And I don't even do the math on if I get to 1,300 or not. I just get into that repeatable pattern. And I think that that's key is not to do the math. When we have so many of these, we, we tend to want to carry the, the we tend to want to carry the luggage of a lost battle with us. That's doing the math. You just got to step into each situation as it's new. The breath that you're breathing right now, you're not going to get back. And it wasn't here three minutes ago. It's here for right now. And then we're going to actualize a new breath in the next moment. You've got to be in that breath. And that's why physiologically, you can only breathe one place. And that's in the present moment. And that's why when you connect to breath, it's keeping you physically anchored in the present moment, which is where your best work comes from. If I was to say, hey, think for a second. There are only two places that you can go when you think. You're either going to go to something that's going to happen in the future, or you're going to go back to something that's just happened or has happened in the past. Either way, whether you're thinking about the future or the past, you're no longer in that present moment. But when I ask you to feel how you're feeling, you're anchored and connected to that moment. So I started to tell a story earlier in, in, about the child that was just off the rails about school, right? It's just completely off the rails. I taught them something that I've been doing for quite a few years. It took me a trip to Fiji uh, on an eight-day cleanse. So this is, it's pretty valuable. It's an exercise that only takes you 180 seconds, or if you're going to do the math, three minutes. You take your hand, you put it over your heart. You take your other hand, you put it on top of that one. And instead of breathing into your nose, into your stomach or your lungs, you just visualize that breath goes directly into your heart. What will happen is your mind will quiet down. Your body will start to talk to you. You'll feel the physical feedback of your heart beating. And you'll actually start to create a connection between your body feeling and your heart beating. When you look at the wave patterns of somebody in frustration, the mental wave patterns go up and down, jagged edges, jagged edges. When you look at how the heart moves, heart waves are smooth. When we start to breathe into our heart and we start to connect with what our heart is doing, it's beating and breath, because breath is life, you start to get those jagged edges of the brain to start to become smooth first. And then when you're staying in resonance, you're in that state, Pretty soon, those two lines are traveling like two parallel train tracks across a curvy landscape. That's what I did. And I, 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 this is so current. This was last week. And I have never taught any students this exercise. 
I, subse I subsequently went on this week and taught it to my black belts because I was like, why have I not taught this to anybody? And it's something we really probably need so much. It's, it's prescriptive right now. Learning how to come from your heart. And you're doing all of this by Zoom. Of course. Wow. Of course. You know, that's, that's great. Look, this, the, the, the limitations that we have more often than not are self-imposed. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, things like listening to this podcast or associating with people that are like-minded that, that, that can, are convinced that, you know what, I can always learn a little more. I can always be a little bit better version of myself. When you associate with people like that, what happens? It takes the lid off you. And the law of the lid says you put a lid on something, that's where it stays. So when you remove that lid and you start to get yourself to grow, that growth mindset, that's where you start to see, look, this is just... I have never taught karate in anyone's living room prior to six months ago, but do you know I do that every single day now? I'm in living rooms, I'm in bedrooms, I'm in backyards. Sometimes I'm in the kitchen and there's lots of jokes about doing karate in the kitchen. So this has given us a new tool um, with which that we can connect with people. And when we start to practice it electronically, there's a safety about this camera. And what we're doing is we're just all in training right now. We're all in a gym. And when we can start to be more face-to-face, -face, which we know we will be on some point in this journey, all these skills that we've practiced, well, then we get to put them to the test. And I'm gonna go, you know what? I'm gonna do the same thing. I'm gonna be the same person I know I am, but now I've got all these skills and abilities that I've picked up because I'm now listening to this or because I'm now watching this. And that's the key. That's that, that's that you've got to feed that to continually move forward. So can you talk a little bit about, um, and this is mentioned in the book, just the rise in ADHD kids that you're seeing and um, maybe based on the research of, of writing the book, like what, what do you attribute that to? Why, why all of a sudden are you seeing that number increase in your practice? Uh, gosh. So I'm, I'm a person of faith. I've got a really strong faith. And I believe that why is a question we probably never get the accurate answer to. And I believe what we feel is what we feel, but it's not necessarily the truth. What we think is what we think. That's not necessarily the truth. Um, so I, I, I just, I would say maybe one out of 10, you know, 15 years ago. And I would say uh, now five or six. Really? And I don't think those all, those don't all pan out. A lot of that is behavior modification. It's just practicing old habits. You know, it's practicing when you, when you were raising your infant and your newborn, all the things you did, you probably don't do anymore. But if you went back to doing them, obviously in an appropriate way, I'm not going to take my son, Chad, and hold him in my arms. The guy's 21 <laughs> now, but I'm going to take that same way. And I'm going to show Chad, you know what? It still works. And you know what? I'm better at it because I know how to do it in a different way. Cause you're a different person than you were when you were, you know, so small. So yeah, I wish I could answer that question. If you find the answer to that question, can you get back to me? Because I would yeah. love to know that stat. I, I, so, I, I, so maybe it's not so much the why, but I mean, I always think that the why, so you made a point of behavior modification. So I don't necessarily think like these labels are a good thing. I don't think we need to throw an ADHD label on anybody. I think it's all how we're responding to our environment. And so there have been so many shifts in these environments over these generations. And these kids that we're all talking about have been raised with electronics. They've been raised with the high pressure school systems. They've been, you know, they're, they're 
being taught that they have to perform, they, they have to perform better. You know, sports are no longer something to do for an extracurricular. Now you have to really perform there too if you want to play in school or so. Their, their box has just changed so much that they're operating in and they're all trying to fit into the same box and some people just don't fit into it. And so we need to do a better job as educators and parents and specialists to, to your point, connect with their brain and the way it connects and show them how to develop that muscle that can survive happily and successfully in the world in which they're living right now and help channel that into a place that makes them successful and makes them feel fulfilled because, you know, what are we going to do? Just keep saying, okay, here's another diagnosis for you. This is why you, this isn't working for you. Let me just call you this. Now you have X, Y, and Z. Like there's nothing more frustrating to me than doing that. Or even hearing my own kids say, well, you know, I have ADHD and I'm like, yeah, so maybe I do too. I don't know. Nobody diagnosed me. You know, and, right. and what good is that doing me? I mean, maybe it gives me a little break at school with some things and some accommodations, but really at the end of the day, we do need them to understand how their brain works and how to be effective and efficient and happy in the world in which they live. I think the most, uh, Sarah, did the, Sarah did the research on that, but she said something like over 15% of professional athletes have ADHD and it actually improves their performance. Because everybody that has ADHD can point to those moments where they are so laser locked in that, you know, a, a loud car crash could go on right next to them. It wouldn't break their focus. So they do have the ability to focus. You just have to learn how to train it to be present in other ways. But perhaps one of the highest profile outspoken people about their ADHD, I, I know off the top of my head, is Richard Branson. Mm-hmm. And he claims that that is actually what has made him so successful because he is such an out of the box thinker and he's willing to try stuff and he's willing to go down a thing. And look, you know how to double your success rate. Does everybody know that, right? You double your failure rate and you're going to double your successes at the same time. And it's actually even more than doubling your success rate. Just start doubling your failure because <laughs> failure, like I said, is an okay. event. <laughs> I got to work on that. <laughs> So I think learning to get little role models like that, little things that are going to help feed that positive, you know, their, their own self-image is really very important because if they've already adopted the identity that they have it, now you've got a tool to work with. Okay, well, let's find somebody else that has it too and it's just crushing it. Right. You know, have you seen this? Are you aware of that? Hey, you, see, you say you're like this. Did you know that, you know, so-and-so skater has got ADHD as well? Or this video game, this professional video game player, they've got ADHD as well. Or this video game designer, or this, you know, or this actor, or this actress, or this singer. There's yeah, so many places. Yes. Michael Phelps has it. Simone Biles has it. So I tell Correct. my kids all the time. I'm like, look Correct. at Michael Phelps. And he's actually in your book. You guys talk about him, how he focused on when he didn't want to go and his mom would remind him of his goal. Yes. And he'd say, yes, I want to continue. So there's a, there's, a good, there's a good example with Simone Biles and also Michael Phelps, a very powerful physiological connection to themselves, mm -hmm. being able to operate in the zone, in a flow state, and really connect those parts. And it doesn't mean life has been without its speed bumps, because we can find stories of both of those athletes and more that have had speed bumps in life. Right. But what you point to is their ability to use that as their metaphor for creating change in their life not as an anchor to pull them somewhere and hold them back. Right. I can see that when I like that, the flow space that, in, that you say, cause I can see with my younger child, who's very, very physical that when he, so right now he's in, um, he's into scootering. He likes to go to the skate park. He could be there for three hours 
and he's in that, I could, now that you said that, he is in that zone. He's working on improving himself. There's all these other um, older kids saying bad words and doing stuff that's not appropriate. He's completely oblivious to all of it because he's just focused on improving what he wants to do. That's really powerful, Rachel, because at the end of the day, isn't that where you want all your children to be? Yeah, I love it. I love to see it. There's an immunity. There's an immunity to that peer pressure. There's almost this, there's almost this inoculation between what somebody else says, okay, but what I say is really the most important thing. Right. He's so happy and hardworking when he's there. And behavior that may be challenging at other times is kind of gone. You know, when I tell him the, the time limit, we got to go, he comes, he gets in the car. He's happy. He's just wants to keep talking about it. Yes. Yeah. Now you just have to figure out how to draw that connection into the rest of the world. Use the same parameters you use there. Just like you said, the expectations were clear in advance when we're leaving, when we're going. There wasn't, a, there wasn't a must, there wasn't a fuss. But sometimes we say, all right, we're just going to do 10 minutes of homework. And then 10 minutes, you're like, I got to get one more thing on. The, they can do one more thing. We've already broken our own rule and we've broken that expectation wide open. So, yeah. Amazing. You're going you're gonna to find that thing and you're going to use that thing as the metaphor for what you're going to wrap everything else around. What are you doing? What's the physiology behind it? And that, I, look, I, like I said in the very beginning, I always go back to physiology because that's where I think we're transformational that way. You know, I walk out on stage like energy down and low voice. You know, I've lost you after, you know, maybe like 30 seconds. Like I, I have to engender and I have to make sure that I incorporate that side of me that is, okay, I'm here. I'm present. I'm ready to, ready to go. Yeah. Well, this has been um, amazing. And I feel like we could talk to you all day long. I want you to like come into my house and help <laughs> my kids. You're sweet. Thank you very much. Thank but you. I feel like I've gotten so many great tips and I've learned so much. And um, yeah, this has been so, so helpful. The, I think exercise, the, the exercise that, sorry, the exercise I reference is called heart math. So if you're writing notes down, it's called heart math. Okay. Just research on that. It is a little existentially foo-foo-y, a little California tree-esque. But <laughs> at the end of the day, I will say this to everybody that's in earshot. Your best decisions were made with a feeling of the heart. True. And then, and then you, you, you didn't have all the resources, did you? Think about it. You already thought of the decision. You didn't have all the resources, but that heart decision caused you to become resourceful. And at the end of the day, it's not our resources, it's our resourcefulness that's gonna lead us to be able to get through the challenges that we're, that, that, that we're going to face. So being mindful of that, that heart math exercise is a way of building that resonance so that carries over for longer periods of time. And three minutes a day will change your entire day when you do it consistently. All right. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think, you know, for all these parents and all these kids out there, just to keep remembering, you know, put your best foot forward. It's super important to get up on the right side of the bed. And it's important to try to create a positive outlook in your mind, because otherwise, if you go in all hoodied up, that says a lot. It makes you feel a certain way. Yeah. And, and remembering too, if getting up on the right side of the bed is not important, you have to make sure they get up on the left side of the bed. <laughs> <laughs> the question that I get after I do any sort of podcast like this is, how do I choose a dojo? How do I this? How do I that? Do I do Kung Fu? Do I do karate? Do I... I'm going to say the same thing that I've been saying for the whole cast. You need to listen to your heart. And if you are going to seek out a martial arts instructor, you need to use that parental heart that you know when something feels right. You're not looking for a, a karate, a taekwondo. You're looking for a relationship. 
And that's what you're going to seek out, whether it's in a martial arts school, whether it's in a gymnastics, you know, gymnasium, you're looking for a relationship of somebody. And we do have a chapter about how you select a coach. And there's some great, great strategies that I would point people towards in that. Well, I think just even, I, well, I asked you this at the beginning before we were recording, but even can you just sit and talk to my sons for a little bit? I feel like just talking to you, forget any of the martial arts pieces, was just another way of opening up your brain, or at least it opened up my brain to think and pull in what I think is applicable for me in my situation and try to think about it differently because we get stuck in the same, to your point, 10 more minutes, power it out. You can do this, you can do this. And that's really not helping anyone and it's frustrating. And I think that the conversation with you helped open up my mind a little bit more and think about how I'm engaging with my kids, my family in general, right? And they're a little like tap, tap, tap on my own shoulder. Hey, remember, remember what Peter told you? So yeah, really appreciate it. So if you, if you want me to talk to your children, I'd be happy to. What I would say is have them listen to the podcast. And then if you notice, now they're probably not going to listen to the whole thing, but if you <laughs> see they get to that point where like he's engaged with something, then go, Hey, do you want to meet that guy? And I, you know how to get a hold of me. That, that, that'd be easy to do. I'd be happy to do that. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, everybody get a hold of this book. It is such a nice guidebook and it's, um, it's interesting. It moves quickly. It has a lot of good little, um, tools out there and it has a lot of exercises you can do that are thought provoking. It's not long. It's not complicated. I mean, I think I said to my husband, I think he should read it. And I think my kids should even look at it as teenagers. I think it might help open up and that little window in there at times and just think about, you know, what they're doing differently or how the impact it's having on them. So the book again is ADHD in the focused mind. Thank you, Peter Johnson. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Christy. I really appreciate it. I wish you guys the best for a great day and enjoy. Well, thank you everyone for tuning into Constant Chaos again. And a special thanks to Peter Johnson for giving us his time. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we have some great episodes coming up shortly. Have a good one, everyone.